Well, good morning. Okay, good. We got a few people here today. It's been an interesting week uh, for probably many of you for many reasons, but certainly for NBC. Uh, as uh, we've had to make adjustments this week, you find me here uh, preaching the word and doing a prayer uh, of supplication rather than the pastoral prayer, because both of our pastors are out this morning. Uh, prayer of supplication is simply going before God, a God who loves to hear his children pray to him and request of him what we need from him. It's simply a time to do that, to request our, from our loving father to serve his children well. So as we do that, would you pray with me? Father, we have come this morning to praise you for your love to us in Christ. Yet when we look around the world, it seems as though you might be absent. We hear of war. We hear of another mass shooting, this time in New York. It seems that COVID is back on the rise, and we could be tempted to think that death is going to have the final say. But Father, we gather this morning to remind ourselves that you have power over death. And we are confident of this because of the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we request of you this morning that you would show that you are the God of life in the midst of a dying world. That you would show that you are the God of light in the midst of darkness. That you can raise, even from the darkest situation, glory for your name. We know this because you sent your son to us while we were still sinners, while we were ungodly. While we were weak, while we were your enemies, that is when you showed to us the love you have for us in Jesus. And your word says that that was the right time for it. And so, Father, we look around our world and we say to you, it is the right time for you to show your love in mighty ways. To show resurrection life and power in the midst of death. So, Father, we pray that our gathering this morning would be a reminder to us that we are a people of resurrection life, that you have called us out of darkness into marvelous life, that you have called us from sin and death, that now we can walk in newness of life by the power of your spirit. Father, we request that you would remind us of that truth and that you would dive it not only deep into our minds, but deep into our hearts, that our very bodies would display your love. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we are reminded that your love saves us, it shapes us, and sustains us. We request this morning that you would be with us in the preaching of your word, that your word would be effective, that it would be powerful, that it would be living and active in our lives. And I confess to you that my own words can do nothing toward that end. And so as your word goes forth, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase that the name of Jesus would be exalted and the name of Mark would be less. We request of you, in short, that you be with your people this morning and that as we hear your word, as we worship your name, that we would be transformed more into the image of your son. We request that you be God. We ask this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. You may have received an email this week that said we were going to be in John 4. 
I'm not saying that our pastors lie, but that's not true. We are going to be in 1 John 4. That little one before John ends up being pretty important. You can find 1 John 4 on page 1084. Uh, when I uh, responded to Pastor John and said, I'm actually going to be in 1 John 4, not John 4, uh, I reminded him that that was actually the last text that he preached. And he said, well, I suppose if you were to preach John 4, you could begin by saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Thankfully, due to the faithful preaching of God's word, I do not have to do that. And so you can turn to 1 John 4, you can find it on page 1084 in these Bibles that we have on the row. Uh, if you do not have a Bible of your own, please take that home with you. It is our gift to you. This morning we will be talking about uh, the love of God in Christ. In particular, the love of God in the body of Christ. And by that, I mean two things. I mean in the physical flesh and blood body of Jesus of Nazareth. And as you will see in 1 John 4, I also mean that the love of God in the body of Christ, his people, us who have been purchased by his flesh and blood. And I want to put out on the front end the same thing that I put out in my prayer. Often we don't feel the love of God. We question whether or not God loves us. And we do this uh, for two main reasons, I think, and I hope to address them as we work through the text. Because of our own suffering and pain, we question the love of God. And because of ours and others' sin, we can question the love of God. But what I want us to see is that the love of God is an objective reality born forth in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. That whether you feel it or not, there is a reality of God's love in Christ that will never be taken away. And so I hope this morning, not only that you see that, but too, that God would be so kind and merciful to us that we would feel it this morning, even in the midst of whatever darkness, sin, pain, or suffering you are walking through. As you look at John 4, even as your eye scans over it, you will see the word love roughly 483 times. That's an exaggeration and a joke. It is okay to laugh. I'm not sure that there are 483 words there. But you'll see that it arises a lot. And what you'll see that there are three strands kind of woven together, and they kind of repeat in a cycle. And I have summarized these three strands as this in the big idea of the sermon. That God's love in Christ saves us, shapes us, and sustains us. That God's love in Christ saves us, shapes us, and sustains us. Now would you please stand for the reading of God's word. First John chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, because the one who is in you 
is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. The reading of God's word. You may be seated. I think as you saw, the, love, the word love appears, maybe it was just 482 times, but it was there throughout, right? And we see this, this concept of the love of God really begins with God. Look back at 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you want to know what the definition of love is, here it is in 1 John 4, verses 9 to 10. Whatever the culture might say about love, whatever you think love might be, it does not begin with what we do or feel or think. It begins with God's action in Christ. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What's my first big point and my big idea? That the love of God in Christ saves us. Notice he sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Be brought from death to life. That he sent his one and only son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now this is 
clear enough from the text, but Mark, you skipped down to verse 9. What about the other verses that you read that seemed a little confusing? Well, let's ask that question. If we're going to talk about the love of God in Christ, what is this first bit in the 1 John 4 really talking about? Testing of spirits. What does that mean? Does it mean that we, get, we gather all the spirits and we put them in a classroom and we say, all right, here's a scantron. Well, do you even know what a scantron is? Some of you are too young, maybe. Anybody scantrons? Yes? Fill in the bubbles? Okay, yeah. Number two pencil, make sure. Give them a scantron test and see, are you, are you from God? Let's see what, what questions the answer. Does it mean that, you know, I don't really know how this works. And I think in the medical world you have these little vials of things and you, you know, drop things in there to see if it's, I don't know, if you're positive or something with COVID. I've no idea it works, but you do. So picture whatever that is in your mind. And you swirl it around and it turns purple like, ah, that's the spirit of God. Right? Is that what we're talking about? What does it mean to test the spirits? Well, in the context here in John's letter, there are people who are claiming the name of Jesus but teaching falsely about him. And what John wants to provide for his people because he cares for them, did you hear? Dear friends, over and over and over again. He, he, he addresses them as little children. He's a father to them in the faith. They are bound to one another in the love of Christ. And so because he cares for them, he wants them to know how do you know that what people are saying about Jesus, how do you know if it's true? He makes a very bold statement. Look at verse 2. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And John really banks a lot on Jesus being in the flesh, in bodily form. Is that really true? Is it really that important? And why would it be that Jesus came in the flesh, in a human body? Well, the only way to see this, how important this is to John, is to go back to the Old Testament promises of God. We could begin all the way back in Genesis 1, and I'm just going to read the entire Old Testament to you, and then we'll go home. Okay? But we could go all the way back to Genesis 1, that when God created the world, he created a good world, and then he created human beings in his image and his likeness, and he gave them a mission to be fruitful and multiply, to rule over creation and to work the ground, that God's mission for creation was going to move forward through human beings. Very quickly in the text, we find out that it's not going to be that easy. Because sin and death are introduced into the world because Adam and Eve rebelled against their good God and believed the words of the enemy. That he wasn't for their good. And they could have a better idea of what, how to move that mission forward. And so sin and death enter into the world. So he created his mission to go through human beings. But in the midst of giving a curse and reminding that there will be increased suffering and pain in the world because of their sin, he also gives them a promise. He tells them that there will be a child, a son, who will come from Eve's body, and he will crush the head of the serpent. He will overturn sin and death. And now the mission of God now goes forward in the promise of God through a human being. And so the rest of the Old Testament in many ways is asking, who is this one who is going to crush the head of the serpent? Then we move forward in the narrative and we see Abraham. God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And we find out that the way that he's going to do that is he makes a promise. And the promise is that there is going to be a human being who comes from Abraham's line. And that's the one who's going to bless all 
nations. And so within the first 12 or so chapters of the Old Testament, we find that God's creation project is going to go forward through humans, that they mess it up, but God's promise, his promise of redemption to undo sin and death, to bless all nations is going to continue through the promise of a human being who's going to come. As redemption moved forward, he calls his people Israel, an embodied people, to embody his character as we see in the Ten Commandments that we read earlier. And we find out rather quickly that just like Adam and Eve, they fail in the mission as well. So God gives a promise to the Old Testament King David that there's going to be a son that comes from him. And God is going to establish his throne forever and through him he will establish righteousness and justice in the nations. And if you want to know what that looks like, talk to Drew Blake. Preached an incredible sermon on Wednesday. I wish I could just give that, but here we are in 1 John 4. But the point of that is when you look at God's purpose and promises in the Old Testament, they're going to be carried forward through a human being. And we can look in the great book of Isaiah, of course. As the people of Israel look for this faithful king and they don't find him, as they spiral downward into sin, God gives a promise to the prophet Isaiah and he says, there's going to be a servant. My servant is going to come. And the rebellion of the people will be upon him. And he will be crushed for our iniquities. And punishment for your sin will be on him. And so the Old Testament is looking for this human who is going to come to deliver his people. Who's going to take their sin upon him. Who is going to be the faithful king to bring justice and righteousness. Who is going to be the one to bring blessing to the nations. Who is going to be the one to crush the head of the serpent and overcome sin and death in the world. And the Old Testament ends and it says, he is not here yet. And the unified witness of the New Testament it says, We know who he is. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And so when you look at the Gospels as they begin, they all connect to the story of the Old Testament to say Jesus is the one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. He is the one who is going to bless all nations. He is the one who is going to bring the presence of God by taking the sin upon himself. He is the one who is now installed as the king at the right hand of the Father and rules in righteousness Injustice. So when John says, you need to know whether they talk about Jesus coming in the flesh, he is right. Because without the love of God and the body of Christ, we have nothing. With the love of God and the body of Christ, we lack no good thing. So brothers and sisters, if you don't feel the love of God this morning, remember the action of God in the body of Christ. His purposes in his creation. His promises in the Old Testament. They are all yes and amen, but only because of the body of Jesus. The unified witness of the New Testament says, God is saving the world in his love through Christ. In other words, 1 John verses 9 and 10. God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And love is this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the first point is that God's love saves us. 
It'd be nice if the story kind of ended there, I think, for us. We tend to think, now that God has done all the work, I can sit back and do nothing. But God actually loves you too much to leave you where you are. God's love not only cancels a debt of sin, but shapes you into a person of righteousness. We can see this beginning in 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. You could look down later in the text, starting in verse 11. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Did you see that? It wasn't a, hey, here's a good idea, right? Dear friends, if God has loved us in this way by sending his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, we also must love one another. Look at verse 13. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And these are pretty bold words from John again. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. Again, not an option to be like, I'll receive God's love, but not love my brother or sister. If you say, I receive God's love and don't love my brother or sister, John says you're a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother or sister. God's love shapes us. That sounds like a high calling, but the good news is, as we read, he has given us his spirit to conform us to the image of Christ. Now, what does it mean to love our brother, our sister, in the way that God has loved us? Now, uh, I'm not going to be the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for your sins, right? So I can't quite love you that much. My love is limited. And you can't do that for me. And I just want to make clear, don't try. But look at the end for which God saved us so that we might remove from sin, that we might live. So what does it look like for us to love in the same way? I think we should love our brothers and sisters in such a way that leads us to follow Jesus more faithfully. We love one another in a way that leads us to follow Jesus more faithfully. Now, if you're a member of NBC, you have agreed to a church covenant. Listen to the language that we have agreed to in order to fulfill what 1 John calls us to here. After saying that we will submit to the authority of the scriptures, which you can find in here at the beginning of John 4, where John says, if you are from God, you will listen to us. It's not necessarily listen to me, but listen to the scriptures, the apostles, the spirit of God as he carried men along. So after we agree to follow the authority of scripture, here's how we can fulfill 1 John 4. We will walk together in brotherly love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We will participate in each other's joys and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows, loving the body as Christ has loved us. We will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully encourage and admonish one another 
as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together for the mutual building up of one another in Christ. This is what we have covenanted to do together. And it sounds so simple and it sounds so easy. Just love one another. And yet when we go to put it into practice, it becomes very difficult and messy. Why is that? I think the obstacle to leading to one another out of sin and into righteousness is in fact our sin. Sounds like some kind of circular reasoning, but here's what I mean by that. We don't practice the love of God in Christ the way that he has loved us. Because when we see someone else's sin, we think they're not worthy of my love. We disqualify them from our having to serve them or pray for them or love them because look at the sin that they have. The flip side of that is we may not love because we feel unworthy because of our own sin. Both of these things are lies from the enemy. There is no sin that your brother or sister can do that makes them unworthy of you loving them. In fact, part of what we have covenanted together and what John is calling us to do is to admonish one another when we see somebody in sin. To say that that is sin. And because when we were weak, ungodly, and sinners, and enemies of God, he loved me in Christ, so too I will reach out to you and address and admonish your sin Also, when you are walking in faithfulness and I see that, I'm going to praise God for it. I'm going to encourage you in it. And when there's good things happening in your life, I will rejoice with you. I sometimes wonder that if we fail to address sin in people's lives because we fail to rejoice with them first. We feel that we haven't rejoiced with them. We haven't done good things with them. So how can I call out the bad things? I wonder if where we could begin is to see And to know each other in such a way that we see God's work in our lives, that we rejoice with them, participate in each other's joys, and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. When is the last time that you heard of even the smallest thing for a brother or sister to rejoice in, and even just sent a text and said, praise God for his love for you. I rejoice with you. I encourage you today at some point, At some point, reach out to a brother or sister and say this. Even if you don't know something now, how can I rejoice with you in God's work in your life? If we begin there, I think it will be easy. And it will be easier for us to welcome rebuke from those who have first rejoiced with us. But our sin can keep us from calling out other people's sins, can't it? How can I admonish you for your sin? if I have not first confessed mine. There's a lie from the enemy that lies underneath this, and it's this. The enemy convinces us that division in the body is not because of sin, but because of confession of sin. As long as I hide my sin underneath the surface, then I'll still be able to be in good relationships with my brothers and sisters. But if I admit that I have sinned, that's when relationship is going to break. Brothers and sisters, this is a powerful lie from the enemy. The sin itself, and he loves it because it's covered up, and sin is just festering, causing division, and further sin to grow, and disease to grow in your spiritual life. And he says, yes, I've got another one to believe my lie. 
confession of sin is what reconciles us back together rather than tear us apart. If you look at the love of God in Christ, it wasn't the fact that they acknowledged sin in the Old Testament that brought them back to him. In fact, it was the fact that they didn't acknowledge their sin. But it was the recognition of our sin and the depth of it on the cross that reconciled us back to God. Give a small illustration of this from my own life. I talk too much, as you can tell, probably. And sometimes my words get away from me. Especially when uh, I've had a frustrating day at work. Things haven't gone well. I bring that home to my family. Impatience can rule the day. Well, there was one day, not here, or not anytime recently, of course. We were in New Jersey, so it makes sense, I guess. But it was a rough day at work. Nothing was going the way that I wanted to. You know, you plan something big. You have, like, big expectations that God's going to do something. And then everything goes wrong, right? It was one of those days. So I came back home, and uh, we were having our family dinner together. And uh, I, if you've ever been around our kids, they're wonderful. They're over there. But we've been described as a tornado sometimes. And it's a fun one. Uh, I think maybe a, a more fitting analogy is that we're like a circus. There's just a lot going on. But it's usually pretty entertaining. But this night, and usually I'm leading a circus, right? I'm causing the tornado. Just ask my wife, especially at the dinner table. But this time, the joy, the circus, the craziness, the food flying across the table, people falling out of their chair, the I, I didn't have any patience for it. I wasn't involved in it. So I was quiet. And then I got super impatient, and I got angry. I set my fork down. I put my hands on the table, and I said the S word, which we don't say in our house. I said, shut up. What would you think I was going to say? I don't know. <laughs> So I said, shut up. And, and, and we know that we don't say that to one another. It's not how we love one another in our family. And so I got what I wanted, silence, right? Air got sucked out of the room. And I was like, I've, I've sinned against my family. So I thought to myself, what would I do if one of my kids told me to shut up, right? Everybody's like, don't tell us. Just, you know, keep that sin underneath. I said, you know what I would do? I would tell them to go to their room. And going to the room is this sort of punishment that shows that there's been separation because of action, but you're still in the house. You're still part of the family, right? And so I said, well, if that's what I would do to my kids, I think I'm going to do that to myself. So I said, okay, uh, daddy's done something wrong. Daddy is going to send himself to his room. So I got up from the dinner table, went up to my room. I was walking around, and I thought, here, here is the temptation. I could go back down and pretend that nothing happened. Because if I admit that I've sinned in front of my kids, I mean, they think I'm perfect, right? They certainly know that that's not the case. But they look up to me by virtue of the fact that they are my kids. If I admit that I've done something to not only wrong, but to wrong and harm them, are they still going to? respect and love me as their dad. This, this is the battle that I'm, I'm waging in my room. It's like, you know, Satan's right there, which going toe-to-toe. 
And the Lord was kind and gracious and said, no, 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 Mark, you've, you've seen people that do that. And it doesn't end well. You've been harmed in the same way. And it doesn't end well. Confess your sin to your family. Admit that you have wronged them and see what happens. So came back downstairs, still silence at the table, you know, just a little clattering of the silverware on the plates, you know, sip of the drink. When I sat down, I said, Daddy has done something wrong. I have harmed you. I've done something that we agreed that we don't do, and I've hurt you. Would you forgive me? And they said, no, get out of the house. I'm just kidding. And they were like, yes. And all of a sudden, the circus was back. The joy was back. And there I was driving the clown car. And the thing about that is, we can be convinced, even in that situation, that if I confess my sin, that's where it's going to go wrong. It's a lie from the enemy. The fact is, your sin is already separating yourself from your brothers and sisters. And if you have something to confess to a brother or sister, go to them. And if someone comes to you to confess that sin, say, I forgive you in Christ because I love you as my brother or sister. This is how we can love our brothers and sisters in the same way that God has loved us. He pursued us to reconcile relationship with us, knowing that it's sin that separates, not the knowledge that we have sin. And so, brothers and sisters, go to one another. Confess sin to be reconciled to one another. And so we see that God's love not only saves us, but God's love shapes us to love one another. And then finally here in 1 John 4, God's love sustains us. Look at 1 John 4, starting at the end of verse 16. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. And this love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are, are we in this world. There is no fear in love. <clears throat> Instead, perfect love drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. Notice what it says here in the end of verse 16. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. Part of the beautiful story of God's love for us in Christ is not just that he saves us and begins the journey, not just that he is here now and even shapes us to love one another in the same way that he has loved us in Christ, but he remains with us and here even through death. And even into the final judgment, which is why John is pointing forward and saying, in this love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. He can look forward to the final judgment and say, there is no fear for those of you who are in Christ because God's love sustains us through this life and into the next. One of the things I like about John is, as we've already seen earlier in chapter 4, he thinks the body, the flesh and blood body of Jesus is really significant. 
But it's not just here in 1 John 4. We can see this in his gospel. Uh, Pastor John is preaching through the gospel of John. And as you read this, you might hear some echoes of what is there in the gospel of John. It's the same John writing it. Not our pastor, but, you know, the apostle. You can think about even how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He takes us all the way back to creation and talks about the word of God that creates. Then in verse 14, he says, that word became flesh talking about Jesus, then everything that he does in the body of Jesus there in the accounting of the gospel. But remember Thomas at the end of the gospel of John? It is only in the gospel of John that he records this story about Thomas. What happens is Jesus has gone to the cross. The love of God has been displayed in the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus has risen from the dead. And in his resurrected body, he is walking around. And Thomas sees him and he says, I just don't know if it's true. Is it possible that he is risen from the dead? And the way that Jesus shows that he is risen from the dead, or the way that Thomas wants to see it, he says, can I see the scars on your body? And Jesus is able to show him the scars from the crucifixion on his resurrected body. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. This is also true in the book of Revelation where we see the resurrected and ascended body. John also wrote Revelation. And when he says that he hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, this powerful one who's going to be the Messiah to, to save his people from their sins. But when he turns around to look at the lion of Judah, what does he see in the body of Jesus? He sees a lamb that looks as though it had been slain. Had been slain, not was slain, had been resurrected body of Jesus. Why is he the Lamb of God there when he looks at him? Because he was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world in the crucifixion of Jesus. When John looks at the story of creation, it's not just that God has done something in the body of Jesus in the past. It's that he's continuing to do something in the body of Jesus for his people Jesus intercedes for us now, and he also looks to the future and sees the resurrected body of Jesus in the heavenly realms, and we will look upon his body as well. And there is no fear in judgment then because God's love doesn't stop when we die. It continues through the grave. One of the things that this teaches us is that as our pain and suffering, as we love one another, will be redeemed in our resurrected bodies. Notice what Thomas said and what Jesus showed him. Notice how Jesus is pictured in Revelation. Not as the lamb who had never been slain, as if death had never happened. He doesn't say, look, my scars are no longer there. But rather his suffering and his love for his people has been redeemed and you can see it in his resurrected body. I think that this is instructive for us. The reason I think it's instructive for us is that just like when we go to one another, sin is often the thing that is the obstacle to loving one another and reconciling in relationship. So suffering is a thing that causes us, us to question whether or not God's love will sustain us. He loved me in the past, but does he love me now? When we look at the redemption of God's body, or Jesus' body, I think we see something instructive for us because the enemy will try to convince you that the pain that you experience is a reason not to trust him. 
But the vision of Jesus' restored body instructs us that though you experience pain now, the one who has overcome sin and death will redeem your pain and suffering in his love. There's a lot of things about the new creation that I can't wait to see. You have this beautiful picture in Revelation 21 to 22.5 of the, the city descending like a bride onto the earth. There's no more grief. There's no more pain. There's no more crying. There's no more death. The enemy has been thrown into a lake of fire and is no more. The city gates will be opened by day. And there is no night there because God's glory is the light. I have no idea what that's going to look like, but it's got to be cooler than these lamps. Even cooler than that stained glass window right there. Can't wait to see the river flowing from the throne. Can't wait to eat of the tree that is for the healing of the nations. I can't wait to see the glory of the kings that come in there. There's so much that I can't wait to see in the new creation. Mostly God himself. But brothers and sisters, this also calls us to look forward to seeing one another in the new creation. Because God's love will sustain you through your pain and through your suffering. Whatever pain and suffering that you experience, the enemy's tried to use it to draw you away from God, but God's love will sustain you so that you can love in the midst of your suffering. I want you to think about the way that you carry these things in your body. Whether you have had a miscarriage, whether you've experienced divorce, whether you have chronic illness, whether you've experienced sexual, physical, or verbal abuse, struggle with mental health, whether you just feel the loneliness of life, chronic pain in your body, or carrying one another's burdens, you carry this pain in your body, and you often, you suffer alone. The beautiful part of God's love in Christ is he sees it all. Whether you think that you are alone in your suffering, whatever it is, whether it's something I listed or something else and something that maybe nobody else sees, God sees your suffering and he sees you fighting through it and he has given you his presence to sustain you through it and to love through it. I can't wait to see your resurrected body. Because Revelation says that there is a multitude that is worshiping God that cannot be counted. And that multitude, John says, goes to the judgment throne without fear because they look at their resurrected body and they realize that God has sustained them. And I'm going to walk around the multitude. I'm going to walk around the multitude and I'm going to see you. And I'm going to see the scars somehow on your body that represent the pain and suffering that the enemy tried to use to crush you, that God used to redeem you. Just like Jesus was able to point to his scars, you're going to be able to point to them. I'm going to see them, and I'm going to rejoice in the beauty of your resurrected body. And I'm going to turn to our Lord, and I'm going to worship him for his saving, shaping, and sustaining love. Because every scar in your body that has been redeemed in your resurrected body is a story of his victory in his love in Christ over sin, death, pain, and suffering. And so I can't wait to get there. And there's a multitude that can't be counted. I've got nothing but time. I'm going to walk around and I'm going to see you. I'm going to be, do you remember when we were in Memphis? Do you remember the suffering that you went through there, that we walked through as a body? Look at you now. Look at the saving, shaping, and sustaining love of God. Let's worship 
him together. I can't promise that my body is going to be that beautiful, but I trust God that it will. When we look at 1 John 4, it's clear that God's love for us in the body of Christ is significant both in the flesh and blood body of Jesus, that he has loved us to save us, to save us from sin and death, that he has shaped us into a people who looks like that and that he will sustain us all the way to the end. And as we look to that future hope, that ought to encourage you in the present to continue to love your brother or sister. That you're convinced that what you mean when you say they've sinned and they're not worthy of my love is that sin has the final word and rules the day. But you need to see them as the glorious resurrected brother or sister where their scars will be made beautiful and help them toward that end. And we can only do this because we remember the love of God in the flesh and blood of Jesus. And so I'll come back to the saving love of God. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This morning, if you do not consider yourself to be a Christian, you think that your sin has separated you from God and can never be done away with. If you think that your suffering is too much for God to redeem, I encourage you to come to him now because the love of Christ calls you and his love is powerful enough to save you to shape you, and to sustain you through anything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your saving, shaping, and sustaining love in Christ. We thank you that love does not begin with our loving you or it would have never begun. We thank you that it begins with your love for us because it's simply who you are. We thank you that you have been faithful to your purposes in creation and your promises throughout the Old Testament that you are going to achieve everything that you desire and fulfill your promises in the flesh and blood body of Jesus. We thank you that you loved us enough not only to save us but also to shape us, that we could experience true joy in you, that we can experience your love as we love one another by your spirit. And we thank you that getting there to the res- our resurrection is not dependent upon our work by ourselves, but your love sustains us. And so, Father, we now seek to worship you for this love. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.